All right, so thank you, Mike, for doing that. Thank you, everybody else, for agreeing to be videoed. <laughs> uh, Ethan did not fall into the natatorium pool after that, so. And Nathan and uh, Liz, I'm gonna have to have you up here because I don't have that much to say. Um, did want to say too, on the table as you walked in, you may have seen that there's clipboards with places to sign up. This is where you try to sit down and I pull it away. Um, so if you're interested in any of those service events, uh, we have a lot of students involved in our ministry. We have very few that serve because your schedules are so crazy. Wouldn't I really challenge you to uh, um, sign up back there for something uh, that's service related? Liz would. She's, she didn't pay me to say that either. Um, but anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, we're going to study the book of Nehemiah together. How many of you have read the book of Nehemiah before? Yeah, okay, all right. Hallelujah. I see that hand, Josiah, in the back. Um, so it's an amazing book. And um, just to give you kind of an idea of, what, of why we named it Wine, Walls, and Worship, this is not that kind of organization. Um, uh, we don't pass out wine. Uh, we may do grape juice every once in a while when we do communion, but uh, we don't um, do wine. At the, anyway, uh, so Nehemiah starts off, and he is literally a bartender. He, he, his whole job, and we're going to get into this in the study, is to taste wine to make sure it's not poisonous so that he can give it to the king to drink. That's his job. And uh, he goes through this whole process where they build the walls, uh, wall around Jerusalem, and then they, they come to this place where they reinstitute the, the worship in the temple. And then he leaves and he comes back. And all the work that he did is just down the toilet. And he's like super mad, starts punching people. It's a crazy book. And so during the book, you're going to wonder this. You're going to say, okay, when was Nehemiah worshiping? You know, was it at the very beginning when he was scared out of his mind going to the king and thought he was going to die? Or was it at the at the end when he's calling everybody to repentance? And uh, the answer is yes, through the entire book. Maybe not in the punching, uh, but in the pulling people's hair out at the end. You are looking at chapter 13 already. But the way that you work, and we're going to really stress this this semester, is the way that you worship. The way that you work is the way that you worship. And so uh, we'll kind of unpack that later. So the other night, I have a, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. You can throw up the picture there. And so those are my kids and my wife. Uh, Graham, Tinley, uh, Samantha is my wife. Uh, so Graham, the other night, have you guys, any of you lived in central Indiana in the last two weeks that there's been all kinds of storms? How many of you sleep through storms? Wow. How many of you are like freaked out by storms and you can't go to bed till it stops? Oh, very few people. My son is one of those people. As soon as it thunders, ah! you know, he's running out of his room and he slams the door and he's like, I'm scared, you know, and then I go up there and uh, I say, okay, Graham, it's time to get in bed. I don't want to go to bed, you know, and I have to lay down with him. And then he falls asleep. It thunders. Boom. You know, he doesn't do anything. As soon as I leave the room, I come downstairs. I just sit down. Boom. You know, and ah, you know, and I run back. And it's like this. It literally the other night, seven times of me going up, laying down with them. And then the last time I actually fell asleep, my wife had to stay over the monitor. Come downstairs, you know. Um, but anyway, that just really made me think about this whole theme for tonight because there's lots of things that happen in our world where we can hear it over and over again and be very unaffected 
especially if it doesn't really affect us. And Nehemiah was not like that. And so tonight, we're going to unpack this. Those who are affected will, are always directed. And I think we've all felt this way. Uh, where we've, we've seen something over and over again. We see this all the time with a natural disaster. Everybody is like pro whatever it is, helping them. Helping these people. Help, help, help for two weeks. And then the media coverage drops. And so does our interest. You know? We're just like that. And it's kind of a problem that we have um, that we really are, it's really hard to affect us because we're exposed to so many things. And so uh, Nathan here, he's going to read chapter 1, verse 1 right now. Yep. Ready? Shout out to Liz for helping me with the pronunciations of these words. <laughs> we have a book for that. <laughs> All right. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Okay. So Nehemiah and his father were both born in captivity. I don't know if you know about Jewish history at all. I don't know why you would unless you have a Jewish heritage or you're really into the Old Testament. But anyway, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was completely destroyed, set on fire. Every stone in the wall was removed and the place was leveled. Uh, that's how Daniel ended up in Babylon. They just destroyed the place. And so we're, we're looking at 140 years later, Nehemiah is like somewhere around 800 miles away from home, which is around Chicago, beyond New York City, into the ocean a little bit. I was trying to find a good comp, comp, something that's comparable. I couldn't find it. And he's really far away from home, uh, and it really wasn't his home. He was born in captivity. He didn't know anything else. Uh, at this point, it's been 140 years since this has happened. And so Nehemiah's name, the entire time, his parents, as he was born as a baby in captivity, they, they named him Yahweh Comforts. Yahweh Comforts. Why would you name your baby that? It's kind of like Noah's parents. Noah's name means rest. Okay? They named him for a purpose and for a reason. And it's possible that Nehemiah was well aware of the verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, which says, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your Lord. Um, he was to be that comfort for the nation of Israel. And um, he, maybe he knew when he was a little kid that someday his name was going to be activated. Someday his name was going to be activated and God was going to ask him to do something that was beyond his ability. And so what happened in 445 B.C., and Susa was the winter residence of the Persian rulers, and it was always good to remind ourselves that these people, when you see lists and you see genealogies, I just read the other day that there's like 33 of them in the Bible. We always go, oh, genealogies, skip please, and we go to the next page or we hit the button to go to the next one until we don't see a bunch of names staring at us. The reason the Bible does that is because every person that's in the Bible was a real person, okay? And they were in real places in real time. And we'll get to that later. So let's read verses 2 and 3. That Hanani, one of the brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The fact that Nehemiah even cares is a very interesting thing to me. But he's three things here. He's concerned, and he's curious, and he's compassionate. A lot of times when we hear something shocking, we're the first two, right? 
we are concerned and we're curious, and then it kind of drops off at that. If we were compassionate, it would push us a little bit further into action. And too often we, we hear uh, news about others and, um, and we don't really, we're not affected by it. Um, and I think we're just exposed to so many things, like I was saying earlier. And it says there was great trouble and shame. And so the news report doesn't look good. The people are in great trouble. The wall is torn down. The gates have been burned by fire. And this shows us the people are unprotected. And nothing can move forward without being protected. They could rebuild the whole entire inner part of the city, the, new, the temple. Everything's back to where it was. And it could just be torn down in, in a day from opposing forces. And so the wall was very important for them to stay protected. Verse 4, we'll end like this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the news of the condition of Nehemiah's people affected him. His conviction led to a physical response. When was the last time that when you heard something, you had a physical response to that? Now, some of you are criers. I know that. My wife is that way. I am not. I'm kind of like a robot. Uh, I don't cry. I cried one time when she threatened to break up with me, but ever since then, I think I've held it in. Man, being vulnerable tonight. But we're not very good at that. We're not a good at, like, we want to just, like, act like everything's fine. We got everything together. My life's fine. I don't have to worry about it. And that is just not how Nehemiah was. He heard the news. The Bible says that he sat down. Even today, Jews sit in mourning for seven days upon someone's death. He's acting like someone's died. Like some people have died, but he sat down. He wept. When was the last time you saw a grown man weep, like really weep? I mean, when we see our dads cry, that's how my kids are going to be someday. They're going to end up in therapy. My dad never cried, you know, or something. But the, when was the last time you saw a grown man weep? It's just... It's unsettling when you see it. I've done a lot of funerals, and I've seen a lot of it, and it breaks me down every time. I just can't, can't even stand it. He, the third thing, that he, he mourned, not just for like 15 minutes or until uh, he, the thought about the city being laid in ruins. He actually mourned uh, for days in the sadness that lingers after weeping. Uh, not only did he do those things, he's not bummed out. He, and then he like goes into super action. Like we said earlier, those who are affected are always directed. The very first way that Nehemiah is directed is to get down on his knees and to start praying and begging and asking God to do something that he can't do. He doesn't say, let me come up with a big plan. I'm going to go up to the king. I'm a great communicator. I know how to serve wine. I'm a great bartender. I mean, what's he going to do without me? He can't have a good time, right? Or what, I don't know what he's saying. But he, he goes before God. And he and doesn't just fast. The Bible says that he continually fasted. He refused purpose for the uh, refused food for the purpose of breakthrough, and um, he prayed. Um, many times we don't pray. I mean, I don't know if you you've gone through those lapses where you just kind of sit in a funk and you haven't prayed for a very long time, and you're like, "Why am I doing this?" It's because we think we're self sufficient. We can do this on our own. Let me, let me just a sneak peek of your future until you're 37 years old. That's how old I am. You can't do it on your own. You can't. That's why he hits the deck. He prays. He fasts just like he was taught from his parents. 
And so those who are affected are always directed the first way that God is going to direct you before we even get started in anything that he does, even before he goes before the king, even before you hear what he actually prays. We know that he hits the deck and he fasts and he does pray because the first thing that we have to do is to pursue. Listen, you could model, teach, get A's, get rich, whatever you're looking to do this semester. And if you haven't done the first thing, in my eyes, in God's eyes, you have just failed, right? Um, same thing goes for tonight. This is the m most students we've ever had at any event. And if, if I hadn't read my Bible this morning, uh, before I came here tonight, not because that's magic or whatever, but before I get busy, I need to get on my knees before God, begging him to give me fresh vision. Otherwise... Um, I'm not acting like Nehemiah right here. So Liz is going to share her story a little bit further and kind of flesh this out for us. So my name has been said like 75 times today, so I do apologize. If you forgot, it's Liz for the 76th time. Um, I'm a senior. I already said that as well. I'm a nursing student here. I see some of my fellow nursing students. It's hard. <laughs> So, like, as a senior, and Nathan's a senior, and I see a lot of seniors in this room, like, we're getting to this point where it's like, oh, I see the end of college, and, like, that's terrifying, and I'm going to have to, like, enter the workforce, and now we're talking about how do you worship while you work, and sometimes those feel like two different things, right? Like, I go to work Monday through Friday. I don't do that. I do it weird hours, but... Um, and then, you know, you go to Bible study, and you go to church, and you go to our life groups, and all those fun things, and it kind of can become separated in your mind. And for me, a lot of the time it does, because you kind of get bogged down by, like, the schedule and the monotony of work on some days. But I recently got a new job, which kind of changed my perspective. Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But everywhere I went to clinical, I would ask my nurse, like, why do you work here? Why do you continue to work here? And, you know, I got some pretty cliche answers, like, oh, it pays well. Like, it's nice here. They offered me a job. Um, <laughs> but then I had one nurse say to me that she worked there because some people wait a lifetime to see a miracle. And she goes to work and knows that miracles happen inside these walls. And so that's why I applied to work at Community North Labor and Delivery. And so that's where I work now, and it's super exciting um, and super stressful because I work in a hospital where the most babies in the state of Indiana are born. Um, both which, my babies were born. And both his babies were born there, so it's awesome. Um, and so, like, my first day, I was super pumped, right? Like, that's like the miracle of life, right? Like I got to be a part of that and experience that. And like the first time I was like literal tears, I was like, this is beautiful, I love babies. Um, you know, and then it gets old, right? So um, baby won't stop crying. Um, there's four people delivering at the same time and I have to be there at once. And uh, people are yelling like, why aren't you here? And it's like, why is next door? And you know, like, it became a job for a while. Like, I mean, there were days and glimpses where it's like, wow, this is really cool. And, like, this is miracles at its finest, right? Like, I think those are the coolest stories. Like, when you hear that, like, Jesus came as a baby, right? Which seems odd. But, like, the impact 
and the miracle of life and young life is just incredible. Like, there's nothing like it. And I know if any of you have, like, younger siblings or, like, got to be there and experience that, like, you can't even compare to, like, that situation. Um, and also this message talks about Yahweh comforts. And so I'm definitely there to comfort parents and their fears of, like, how am I going to sleep? And it's like, well, you don't. You can do that later. Um, but then when I work in a place where so many babies are born daily, and, like, you're so used to this joy and this excitement, you forget about the fact that there are people there who are having the worst day of their life, who have gotten the worst news they've ever received. And to be there in those moments is just as powerful. And this verse, like, super struck to me as a nurse because they're always told, like, don't show emotion. Like, you know, you be a rock for that patient in their time of grieving. And, like, that's what I accepted. It's like, oh, that's the norm. Like, I'm there. I'm a solid. I'm a rock. Like, I'm their rock there to care for them. And that's what I accepted as a standard of care. Um, but there was a woman who came in and did not have good news. Um, her baby was being born preterm and really had no way of making it. Um, just wasn't grown to viability, and she knew that. And we all knew that, and we were preparing for how are we going to do, what are we going to do. And we have a really great team for, like, those situations. But I remember a nurse, Hannah, who I really admire, and she's young. Like, she was on orientation. Like, she's not much older than I am. And I remember her sitting down on the edge of the bed and weeping. And I remember her walking out of the room and being like, and people asked her, did you really cry? And I thought that was interesting, that people were, like, shocked that she had showed those emotions and, like, been present with people. And how hard that is to do with strangers, but how hard it is to do with people that I love and care about and see about daily. Mm. That I can't sit down, weep, and pray with people that I love. And I really noticed that in my own life, that it's go, 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 go. Like, I have to be hard. I have to be strong um, for these people that I love who are really going through some terrible, awful times. And it really changed my perspective on how we address things, how I look at life, how I look at miracles, and how I look at the comfort of God. Because I have to be an extension of that comfort. Like, God's not hard. Like, he's a rock for sure. But, like, God's there. God comforts. And was I comforting by being hard and stoic? Or am I comforting when I sit down and weep and mourn with you? Because I can't even understand the loss that some of these people have experienced. Um, but sitting down and praying and weeping has been incredibly powerful to me. Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those who weep. And boy, that stuck with me. And I think we don't, well, I allow, I weep a lot. Um, <laughs> if you know me, if you're ever in a live group with me, don't call me, I'll cry. Um, ask Ryan. <laughs> um, but I just think it's really important to not devalue that human connection and to be an extension of that comfort. Like when we, there are times that we need to receive it and so we have to give it to people um, when we're strong enough to give it.
Perfect. Thank you. Those who are affected are always directed. That's a perfect example. Um, so a few things out of the passage. Let's go back up into the passage, and then Nathan's going to share his story, and then we're going to be done. We're going to worship one more, uh, one more song at the end. Um, first thing that we need to just soak in tonight is that you are a real person in real time. Okay? You're a real, I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> and so just like Nehemiah, just like Hakaliah, and what were the other names that we couldn't pronounce? Um, you are a real person in real time, and God has always valued real people in real time. Your life is not boring in God's eyes. He's very much in love with you tonight. I hope you know that. The God of all creation loves you passionately. And also, I think we also, tonight from the passage, we need to make a move from being concerned about people to being compassionate about people. And I think just being concerned causes a lot of slander and a lot of gossip. And when we move into compassionate, it's really hard when we understand where someone is going through. Like there's probably people here tonight, I know for a fact, that are not here tonight because they're really struggling and who wanted to be here and just couldn't. Um, and, and Nathan's going to talk a little bit about uh, that a little bit more, but just through the depression, the anxiety, it's just overwhelming. Um, but God is, God is gracious and compassionate, and uh, so should we be as well. Um, the last thing I was thinking is to, to let your guard down, and that's, that's what he does at the end. He just lets it all out. <laughs> Even before he actually changes his, changes his presence in, when he's with the king, like he does all this stuff, and then he has to go to work, and he can't pull it together. And it's the very beginning of the year, and he's like, God, I'm ruining all the future life group lessons. But it's the beginning of the year, and he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not faking it anymore. I'm going to be real. I'm going to go, and I'm going to act like something's wrong with me in front of the most powerful ruler of my time. How, how about that for authenticity, honesty of the heart? So Nathan's going to share his story, and then we'll wrap up. What's up, everybody? So my name is Nathan, like you've heard a lot. Um, I'm a senior. Um, I'm a finance major. I know I'm boring. I'm a nerd. And uh, I'm also on the golf team. So if you ever want to do anything with golf, hit me up. We'll go play top golf golf course, or if you really suck, we'll go to the putt-putt. I don't judge. Um, but I wanted to get in, um, when Andrew was first talking about the message, um, I was trying to think of what am I going to share, because Yahweh comforts can relate to a lot of things. Um, anybody can relate to that. And as I was thinking through it, I had some stuff that I was on my heart, but I was like, I don't, I don't really know if this is what I want to share. And eventually, after some time, I got to this, uh, this subject that I wanted to touch on. And in my heart, I'm like, no, Nathan, you're not going to share that. And then I can, it's not like God and I are having a little conversation, but I can feel like, no, you're going to share that. I'm like, no, I'm not. I, yeah, you are. Um, a little Moses and burning bush action going on. But uh, I, was, I was thinking through, um, and I think one of the most powerful things that we can do um, is to be vulnerable. Um, and I heard it said by somebody um, that normally everybody is crooked. Some people just do a better job of hiding it. So the only time that you really taste freedom with anything um, is when you start being honest. And that's something that some people get and some people don't. 
Um, but the sooner that we do, the more often that we start to taste freedom um, and also find um, closer relationships as well because us being vulnerable is going to initiate that vulnerability back. Um, but an al also another important thing I was thinking of was uh, in 2 Corinthians, um, it talks about how we are comforted, but it's not just for us, but ultimately so that we may comfort others. We're going to have that relatability. Um, we're going to be able to not just sympathize, but empathize, because we've been there and we know what it's like. And since we've opened up, they're going to come to us. Um, we're going to be able to share what got us through. Um, and they're going to be able to take comfort in that and be encouraged. Um, so some of you might be similar um, to my dad, who's very stoic. It might be a lot more like Andrew, doesn't really cry. Um, something unfortunate happens, mistakes happen, completely moves on. I know when I text my dad about something, I'm discouraged about something, he's going to text me the same thing, just move on. And uh, never really helps much. Uh, I go to my mom more. Um, <laughs> but there are some, me being one of them, who we play scenarios over and over in our minds. Um, and it's almost, I guess one way to put it is paralysis by analysis. Um, and you live in the mistakes, um, and you're overwhelmed by the shame to the point to where it starts to become anxiety. Um, you can start to live in it to where day by day um, you can be, like, despondent. It can be like a type of depression for a while or a fog. Um, and I know that's something that is becoming more common, especially with our generation. Um, you hear a lot more people talking about depression and anxiety, I think, than ever before. Um, but that's something that as I'm growing older and you go through more things, I'm starting to realize that in myself, you know, how I process things. Um, and it really started to come to a head this summer. Um, and I would have some nights where I'm going through some different things and I'm up till two, three in the morning just lying in bed and thinking about it. Um, and you start to become so anxious and the reality is it's two or three in the morning and nobody's up. You're not going to reach out to somebody because they're going to reach out to you in the morning, and it's just you there alone with your thoughts. Um, and I had this happen for weeks and weeks, and it'd be taking the joy um, out of days, and it'd be taking sleep away um, at nights. And not only does it affect you, but it also affects the other people around you. Who I started having people ask me, like, "Hey, what's going on? Like, you seem different." Um, and a way that I described it is almost night terrors in a way. Um, that guilt, guilt and shame would just not leave. Um, and then it's just, is such an energy suck. Um, and trying to go to work in the morning and work well, um, and focus on glorifying God, your work's hard. Um, so recently I really have come to like a breaking point with this. And a friend, um, sent me a really good quote, um, about God's forgiveness, um, that I want to read. Um, and the title of this section is Freedom from Sin's Power. And it says, as long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will often find myself recommitting the very sins about which I am most guilty. The devil is well aware of this fact. He knows that if he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate me with sin's power. The gospel, however, slays sin at this root point and therefore nullifies sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from its guilt. And preaching such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. 
and as I was thinking about this, um, you don't get to decide how you're loved by God. You don't get to decide how you're forgiven. Um, if you're trying to decide that, essentially you're saying that either Jesus's death wasn't enough or you are playing the role of God in your life. Because um, some people out in the world would say that um, the guilt that you put yourself through or something, oh, that's so so honorable, like you feel so bad about this. Well, to a point, there's a difference between, you know, shame and guilt, you know, that comes as a result of sin, but also something then beyond that where we're living in that and we're just accepting Satan's lies um, about whatever we've done and we're not taking hold of God's forgiveness. Um, so I think realizing this and realizing God's love truly is not conditional, um, God really does forgive. It's something that when you grow up in the church, you hear and you're like, yeah, I know it. But then when nights come like this and you come face to face with anxiety and are you really going to believe that? Um, and as I've started to take hold of this, I think there's true comfort that can be found in it. And I think one special thing that we can do is just laying hold of scripture. Um, so Isaiah 43, 25 has become big for me. Um, and God is talking and he says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers them no more. Um, so I think two things that hit me in that verse is God saying, even him, someone who's so holy is willing to forgive you, but it's not because you're so good. It's for his own sake. It's for his glory. So that makes me even more comforted because I know that if it's for his glory, then he's really going to keep doing it. But also, he remembers them no more. So I'm constantly playing these things over in my head. But God's not even thinking about them. He's remembering them no more. So I need to be able to take hold of that and realize there's actual forgiveness. Um, there's actual love. Um, if I'm willing to believe that and accept that and put my faith in that. Um, but the reality is God doesn't just sit there and make you feel all those things if you're not willing to choose to go about, to find that scripture, to pray about it and be like, God, I'm weak. I'm struggling to believe this. I need you to help me to believe this and think about that um, scripture and meditate on it. Um, so one verse that I wanted to read um, comes from Psalm 94, um, 18 and 19. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Um, I think... When I'm the weakest, that's normally when I'm seeing God the strongest. Um, and the reality is there's no problem with you praying and being like, God, I'm weak. I can't do this. I need your help. Um, I think it takes a lot more strength to do that and to realize that we can't do it on our own um, than to try and be the strong guy who feels nothing um, and just powers his way through everything. Um, being vulnerable with people, but also with God, um, is really important. So that's why I wanted to share with you all tonight, and I hope, if anything, that you grab something from that. All right, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. By the way, Michaela, great work. Appreciate you. Um, go ahead and uh, dim the lights back down here. And uh, I, wanna, I have one more story to, sh to share with you. And uh, it comes from uh, 
One of my favorite hymns. I grew up in a church that didn't sing any new songs. A new song was like from 1921. And so we sang a lot of Amazing Grace. You guys know that song? Every week, baby. Doxology, Amazing Grace, Love Lifted Me. You know. I know all that Love Lifted Me is 221 in the hymnal. Okay. So uh, well, the guy who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, his name is uh, John Newton. And uh, a lot of people don't know anything about him, really, but he was a fantastic guy. Um, stories go that he had, he had more energy and more health than any preacher in the 1700s. He was like this powerhouse guy. And um, he, <laughs> he came across this other guy who was the opposite You ever felt like that, where you see people who are happy and healthy, and you're like, I hate you. I'm neither of those things. How can I be you? I don't want to be me anymore. Maybe you've felt like that. I think all of us have felt like that before. And so William Cowper was this guy's name. And uh, before he had met John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he, uh, he he was 36 when he met John. And he had tried to commit suicide three different times. Um, he, uh, was checked into an insane asylum for like a couple of years. The guy was like, had completely lost it. And John didn't see him as this wreck. He saw him as a friend and he just decided to like pour into this guy's life. And he was there all the time. He lived with him for a while. I mean, he spent from 1767 when they met to 1780, they were with each other nonstop. He was just helping him, getting him back to thinking right. And then they, they split apart for the last 20 years of William's life. And uh, John Newton, in his like happy, healthy state, would visit William as much as possible. He was there, writing him letter after letter after letter, visiting him, you know, doing anything he could to try to keep him alive. Why did he want to keep him alive? Was it because William was adding so much value and making him so happy? No. Probably bummed him out. Probably was very difficult for him to be affected by this guy's sadness. So, uh, w- William ended up dying uh, in 1800. Did not kill himself. Made it all the way to the age of uh, 67 years old. Um, and uh, in 1772, during that time when he first was interacting with John Newton, he wrote this song, one of my all-time favorite songs, which makes me, me want to cry when I read these words. I'm going to read these lyrics to you, and I want us to sing this last song together as well. And verse 1 says this, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's so good he had to say it three times. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. Verse 2. I mean, think about this guy writing this. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile is he, wash all my sins away. Verse 3. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Verse 4. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Come on now. 
Last verse. I love this because it talks about our insufficiency uh, without God. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Would you stand with us? Let's sing one more song and we'll be done for tonight. <laughs>